0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 14. We're starting in verse 34 and reading through to chapter 15, verse 28. Matthew 14, verse 34. This is the word of God. Let us give our attention to it. And when they had crossed over, they came to, a, to land at Gennesaret. And When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made Of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come now to hear of Christ. The great Savior, the cleansing Savior. And we would have our hearts opened and inscribed upon by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we readily confess without you we can do nothing. And so in speaking and in hearing and in our gathered worship now, we plead with you, Father in heaven, be merciful to us and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the verse before our reading today finishes with these words, Truly you are the Son of God. Of God. Jesus walking on the water, displaying his almighty unparalleled power. You know, we see similar displays of that almighty unparalleled power, but I think we also get to see something a little different about our Lord. We see in the passage before us first that our Lord is the Savior who cleanses his people from the vilest afflictions even from sin itself. He's presented to us as the cleansing Savior, the healing and cleansing Savior. But we also see in this passage uh, the reality that those who think they are already cleansed remain in the pollution of sin, and those who know their need and are on the outskirts of society are brought close to Christ and receive that very same cleansing. These realities are portrayed for us in the text as we see the needy flocking to Christ and the proud taking offense at Christ. And what we're learning here, friends, is this. Man-made righteousness and man-made holiness will never grant entry into the kingdom of heaven man-made righteousness and man-made holiness will never grant entry into the kingdom of heaven it is only the cleansing and the righteousness that is found by faith in Jesus Christ that will grant us entry into the kingdom of heaven and the text before us shows us that in three distinct sections verse 34 obviously where we see the sick of Gennesaret cleansed. The sick of Gennesaret cleansed. Secondly, then in chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, we see the pollution of the Jews remaining. And then finally, in verse 21 following, we see the cleansing of a Canaanite family. So remember, Man-made righteousness, man-made holiness will never suffice to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is only the cleansing and righteousness that come from Christ that will suffice. And we see that, first of all, in the region of Gennesaret, chapter 14, verse 34. As we think about these matters before us, we need to remember two contextual matters, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew cites the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 15 in this, uh, the passage before us. He has cited the prophecy of Isaiah many times in his gospel, not least chapter 8, 17. Uh, and this is when Jesus was healing many, and we read there, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's from one of the servant songs, the songs in Isaiah of the suffering servant. And we're taught by this that there is a theological connection between the healing of physical afflictions and Christ's atoning work for sin. The healing of the physical in Isaiah is that likened unto the healing and cleansing from sin. Sin. Isaiah 53 is speaking about illness, but it's not just physical ailments, that means perhaps not even principally so. It's the spiritual ailment of sin and its varying pollutions in our life. And what we also see in Matthew's Gospel, and in all the Gospels, in fact, is that those who are on the periphery of Jewish society, those who are often despised, looked down upon, They who are afflicted perhaps the most, it is they who come to Christ. It is they who come to him for healing. It is they who come to him principally so for spiritual cleansing. And that's what Matthew's laying out for us here. Chapter 14, verse 34. Where is Jesus? Gennesaret. That's Galilee. Galilee known as what? Galilee of the Gentiles. And there he finds people despised by the Jews and afflicted by physical sickness chapter 15 then we see the Jewish spiritual leaders the scribes and the Pharisees those who who were best placed to identify and receive the Christ Uh, I speak as a man of course they were offended by the Christ and rejected him and then in verse 21 we go to Tyre and Sidon Canaan Tyre and Sidon, that place where the Old Testament prophesied its destruction because of their pride, we find a Canaanite woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. She's already got faith, and she comes to Christ in faith looking for help and for mercy. Friends, the lesson is quite simple. Physical and spiritual cleansing came to those who were on the outside of Jewish society, while those closest to the center, the spiritual establishment, the covenant people, salvation at this point passes them by. That's the essential message here. Note the zeal for Christ in Gennesaret verses 35 and verse 36. They come to Gennesaret, the men recognize him, and we read this. And they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. They spread the word everywhere. Notice the word all twice. They wanted everyone to know that Jesus was back in town. There was zeal for him. Contrast that, friends, to chapter 13, verse 53 to 58, where Jesus goes back to his hometown. He's despised. He's mocked. And we read this in verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. His own hometown did not receive him. And the lack of faith and rejection in his own hometown momentarily curtailed Christ's ministry. Not so in Gennesaret. They spread the word around. Jesus is back in town and they implored him to labor. What a contrast. They were zealous for his mighty works. They were zealous for his person. They were zealous for his cleansing. I think we have here in Gennesaret a picture, and I'm not saying every single one of them, but by and large a picture of saving faith. Now we need to be careful, don't we, because we know that people came to Jesus for many reasons, sometimes just to be healed, not because they loved him. But I think the picture of this narrative is this— The people of Gennesaret receive the cleansing of Christ, the Jews, chapter 15, do not, and the woman of Canaan does receive him. I think that's what's going on here. There is a contrast between saving faith and no faith. Consider the picture in Gennesaret. The crowds are pressing upon Jesus. They're up close and personal with him. They're face to face with him, imploring him, looking him in the face, crying out to him, as it were, let us be near you. If only we can touch your garments. It's intimate. They're pressing in. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't react negatively like the disciples do with the Canaanite woman. He doesn't push them away. He doesn't gather up his garments by the hem so they can't touch him. He let them, it says, as many as touched his garments were made well. Think on that. What power... What holiness and what love are on display here from our Saviour. Power, holiness and love. Power in that there's no command, no cry, no prayer up to heaven. They simply touched the edge of his garment and their sicknesses were removed. Almighty power. But it's not just power on display. It's power through holiness. His holy power healed them. Their sicknesses were gone. The curse was being undone by the powerful holiness of Christ. And not just power and holiness, but love. That Jesus would allow himself to become ceremonially unclean. As it were, their uncleannesses being put upon him while his cleanness was being granted to them. But friends, we know, do we not, the holiness and the love of Christ goes much further than this in his life. It's that love that would send him ultimately to the greatest place of pollution, the greatest place of uncleanness, the greatest place of condemnation and judgment, the cross. Friends, listen, at the cross... Jesus became polluted by sin, not his own inherent sin, but sins imputed to him. And he was judged and condemned accordingly. He bore in himself and upon himself the sins of his people and the curse of God. Friends, at the cross, if you're a Christian, all your sin... And all of all of our sins and all of all of the sins of his people throughout time were imputed to him at Calvary's cross. Our sin became imputed or reckoned unto him and he bore the guilt for them and died the death for them. Paul writes these remarkable words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. To become sin for us. Friends, it's vital if you're a Christian today, you understand that reality. It's vital that we understand what happened to Jesus and is what is happening in picture form now, what happened to Christ at the cross, so that we know what has happened rightly in salvation to us. At the cross, Christ became on our account shamed, guilty and cursed. Paul says that in Galatians 3:14 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. Christ was shamed, was found guilty, he was polluted and he was cursed. Understand what happened to your Savior and then you will understand what has happened to you in the glorious gospel of our Savior. Christ was shamed, polluted, guilty and cursed so that we might not be cursed but be blessed. We might not be polluted but we might be made holy. We might not be shamed but held in honor by God. Isn't this wonderful? Our Savior stood in our place so that we don't have to face those realities. No shame, no guilt, no fear, no curse. This is what's true for you, dear Christian. This is what's true, because it was true for Christ. And yet we can say what a terrible shame, in its fullest sense of the word, that some of the religious people of the day failed to see this wonder chapter 15 verse 1 the pollution of the jews remained their unholiness their unrighteousness remained jesus fame spreads throughout the area so the pharisees and scribe scribes come to him from jerusalem and they've come to dispute with him and, and they've come to dispute about pollution about cleanliness That's what their dispute is about. Chapter 15, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. To be clear, the Jews had a very specific way. Indeed, today they have a very specific way of washing their hands before they eat. There's no biblical requirement in the law of Moses to wash your hands before you eat. It is according to the tradition of the elders. That's what they say. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders was their own commentary upon the law of God. And they made up all these additional rules to say, well, the law of God says this, but it really means this. You must wash your hands before you eat, lest you become ceremonially defiled. You can see the Jews are concerned. They're concerned about purity. They're concerned about defilement. They're concerned about being holy before the Lord. But over time, what they've done is this. They've replaced God's law with the law of men. And thus, they've lost the standard of holiness. Jesus challenges their question with another question, verse 3. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your own tradition? comes back rather more forcefully, doesn't he? Not breaking the tradition of the elders. You're breaking the command of God in order to hold to your own tradition. And he cites one of their traditions, verse 4. The commandment says, honour your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, the tradition says, if anyone tells his father or mother what would have been gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. Mark 7 is a parallel passage here. In there, we're told of a thing they had invented. It's called Corban. Corban. They would denote their resources or finances, which they were to keep and use for the care of their parents in their old age. They would denote it as separate and devoted to the Lord and therefore would not spend it upon their own parents' care in their old age. Thus, breaking the command of God. What better way to honor the Lord than looking after one's parents in their old age? The problem with this, verse 6, he says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God they had emptied the commandment of god he calls them hypocrites you hypocrites well did isaiah prophesy of you when he said this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me hypocrites empty shells of people having the outward appearance of cleanliness and holiness and righteousness, but being filthy inside, being without faith, without holiness inside. They praised God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. In vain they worshipped God, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, this is the covenant people, and it teaches us the very sobering reality that the road to this kind of hypocrisy is a very easy road, but my, a deadly road, a road which will see us in hell. And it requires great humility on all of our parts to ask ourselves, do I possess Christ Or just the outward forms of religion? Another way to ask that is, am I serving myself or am I serving God? Am I walking according to my own laws or according to the law of God? Do I have the sum of saving knowledge written in my heart or am I just concerned about externals? We must all ask that question. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the disciples and the people around him in verse 10. Jesus had already told the crowds, or he will tell the crowds in verse 20, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's the conclusion to his argument. Eating with unwashed hands does not defile you before God. He's saying the scribes and Pharisees were wrong in their view of washing hands it's not the washing of hands that cleanses you before god or the not washing of hands that makes you defiled before god he says also in verse 10 it's not what goes into your mouth either he's not talking about physical food in the sense that that you know some things can make us ill he's talking about a spiritual reality What makes us unholy and unrighteous before God? It's not what we put in our mouths. He says, verse 10, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Listen, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The disciples say to him, don't you know that the Jews, the scribes, Pharisees are offended by what you said and Jesus tells them look they're blind guides they're plants which the Lord has not planted and will be uprooted they're blind guides don't follow them lest they fall into a pit and you fall with them and he tells them in verse 17 he explains do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled It's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean before God. Rather, it's a matter of what's in your heart and what comes out of our mouths. Verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. That's really important, friends. The content of our heart is at stake here not what we eat or whether we wash our hands. It doesn't matter how externally clean we are. doesn't matter whether we're an elder or a pastor or, or, or any such thing or our social status or our ethnic background. None of those things count. But what comes out of the mouth which proceeds from the heart, that's what defiles a person. What comes out, he says, verse 19, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Our Lord has just said a couple of chapters earlier, Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Think on that for a moment. We live in an age now where people are more than willing to express their opinions on social media, Twitter, whatever else it is. And then a couple of years later, they get caught out. They've said something they shouldn't have said. And all of a sudden, there's a media storm. And what do they say? Well, what I said doesn't reflect the person I am. Well, they've got to reckon with Jesus on this one, don't they? From the heart, out of the mouth, proceeds from the heart. What people say online, what people say face to face, is precisely the content of our heart. Your heart, my heart. It precisely reflects the kind of person we are. It's a gross lie to say, well, it doesn't reflect the kind of person I am. It's nonsense! Absolute lie. Matthew Henry agrees, he says, "...what great danger we are in of pollution from that which proceeds out of the mouth. The corrupt fountain of that which proceeds out of the mouth, it comes from the heart. That is the spring and source of all sin, Jeremiah 8-7. It is the heart that is so desperately wicked, Jeremiah seventy nine. "...for there is no sin in a word or deed which was not first in the heart." So, when we say something or do something wrong, let's at least have the honesty and the courage to say, I did it wrong. I got it wrong. I was wrong. Please forgive me. We need to understand this, don't we? Our sin is our sin, it's not what others make us do. No one else can make us sin. It's our sin. It's the content of our heart being revealed in that very moment. Our choice to sin is our choice to sin. It doesn't matter how aggravated you are by someone. It's the content of your heart being revealed. And frankly, friends, our text is teaching us that no amount of religious cosmetics... All linguistic gymnastics can cover up this reality out of the fullness of the heart the mouth speaks. Matthew Henry says again, if he wash, he is not the better before God. If he wash not, he is not worse. The old hymn says it this way, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. It's not the washing of hands. It's not the looking respectful to others or respectable to others. It's none of those external things that ultimately counts. It's not the washing of hands or the observation of man's rules and traditions that makes anyone in this room today clean before God. It's faith in Christ. Friends, do you want holiness? Do you want that cleanliness of which we've seen in this text? Do you want that freedom from pollution of sin internally and externally? Faith in Jesus Christ is the only possible route. And we know, do we not, friends, the pollution of sin in our own lives, even as redeemed, is a terrible problem. And the pollution of sin is a blight upon mankind. With it comes shame and guilt and dysfunction and terror and fear and anxiety. Separation from fellow man and separation from fellow God. And dear friend, if you're here today living in that estate without Christ and your life is one of constant dislocation from God, and you're trying your best to make it up with God, I've got one word to say to you. Stop. Stop. Immediately. Because it's not going to work. Stop and listen to the close of our passage today, where we see the Canaanite woman and her household cleansed. Jesus moves on from there again into an interesting area, Tyre and Sidon. You go back and search the old covenant, you'll see these towns were were great towns, profitable trading, seafaring towns. Their pride was colossal, and God singles them out for destruction because of their pride, that they'd elevated themselves against God himself. That's where Jesus went and found faith in a Canaanite, and a Canaanite woman in that. For the Jews, there's not much more of a despised character in all their theology than a Canaanite and then a Canaanite woman. The word dogs comes up later in the text. It's troubling, isn't it? But that's what the Jews called the Canaanites. They called them dogs. Dogs. That's what they thought of them. But the Canaanite woman already has faith in Christ, I believe. Notice how she comes to our Lord in verse 22 and implores him. Listen to the terms of engagement between this woman and Christ. Have mercy on me, O Lord son of david wow have mercy on me o oh lord son of david she honors christ as her lord and master and more than that as the messiah who had come she got it she understood who she who he was Her approach to the Savior is one of faith. It's one of trust. It's one acknowledging that she's owed nothing because she says, have mercy on me. And Jesus remains silent with good purpose, not because he's cruel. He remains silent. And the disciples get all fussed, send her away. She's crying out after, she's bothering us. And Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 24. Her faith is not lost on Christ. Her plea is not lost on the cleansing, generous Savior. But He says, I wasn't sent to you. You're a Gentile. I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he's doing that to draw greater faith out of her, not to inhibit her faith. His design is to elicit greater statements of faith from her, and that's what she does. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. She's submissive, she's humble, she's pleading. And Jesus answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, Jesus is using the language of his day. He has no intention of of, of lumping her in with the dogs. But he's saying, these are the social structures. This is what the Jews think of you. Now, what do you think of it? And this is what she thinks of it. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What a wonderfully wise and faith-filled answer from this Canaanite woman of Tyre and Sidon. He says, it's not right for me to spread the gospel message outside of Israel. And she's saying, but yes, there's enough of the gospel message and there's enough of the Savior for even those outside of Israel, even those who are called dogs. He's saying it's salvation has not yet come to the Gentiles. She is saying, yes, Lord, but salvation is free and broad and expansive. Even the crumbs may eat the... Even the dogs, sorry, may eat the crumbs of salvation that fall from the Jewish table. And Jesus' response is remarkable. Verse 28. Oh, woman... Great is your faith. O woman, great is your faith. You know what he's doing there? He's praising her faith. One writer says this. Divine love, Christ, is so infinite and marvelous that it even praises a human being for exercising a gift, in this case faith, with which this very divine love has endowed her. He's praising her for the exercise of the gift of faith that he gave to her himself. That's how generous our Savior is. He praises the Canaanite woman as a daughter of great faith. A daughter of great faith. And what does he say? Be it done for you as you desire. And without saying any more, or being near the daughter, or laying hands on her, her daughter was healed instantly. Faith in the mother, cleansing in the daughter. Friends, we've got here a picture of a very, very beautiful saviour. I want you to hear those words. A very, very beautiful saviour. A generous saviour who gives faith and then praises the one who exercises that faith. How generous is that? Isn't Jesus wonderful to us and kind and generous? But we ought not be surprised, friends, at the generosity of this praise. Because Christ would give much more and had given much more to this woman. Yes, he healed her daughter immediately, but he would also give himself. Through one lens, we can say in this passage, salvation came to an unlikely convert, a Canaanite woman. Through one lens, we might say she's an unlikely convert. Convert, But through the gospel lens, dear friends, we have to say this. This is the kind of person, precisely the kind of person, for whom Jesus came to live and die. The outcast, the needy. Friends, if you see yourself as a sinner... And you see, perhaps only in your safe, tiny, weak faith. Perhaps you're not much in terms of society's estimation. I want to say to you, dear friend, you're precisely the kind of person that Jesus died for. You're precisely the kind of person Jesus died for. Jesus doesn't just give praise, he gives himself Friends, he lived his whole life to please and obey his Father and a whole life of righteousness that we might have his righteousness imputed to us. That there is no lack, no weak link in the righteousness that comes to us from Christ, Christ and is received by faith alone. Think again, he died a cursed death on the cross that the curse might totally and finally Be removed from those who have faith in him. He died to remove the pollution of sin, the stain of sin, that we might bear sin no more. Friends, we sing this all the time. Believe it. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do you believe it? All their guilty stains. Nothing left for you and me to do but believe. Friends, it's faith and faith alone that unites us to the generous Savior. It's faith and faith alone that unites us to the praising Savior. And it's faith and faith alone that unites us to this cleansing Saviour, Thanks be to God for him. Let's pray. Lord, we bless and we magnify you and honor you. In Christ, all the treasures of salvation are found most perfectly. We praise you, Lord God, that he has communicated such to us. And we pray, Lord, that if there be any who... Do not know you here this day and are playing with religion, playing with the forms of religion, but do not know you. We plead with you for mercy. Grant this day salvation and repentance to come to this house. We bless you, our Lord and God, for you alone have done wondrous works. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.